Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. I'm the even-numbered version of Sam that's pretty good and you should listen to slash watch. You didn't hate number three. And? I'm just saying, I'm not sure the even thing holds up. People say that it does. Oh, I don't think so either, but it's a bit. This week, we are discussing 1991's Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the only original series film made while I was alive, and the final Star Trek film featuring the entire cast of the TOS series, minus Majel Barrett. Obviously, The Final Frontier was not a success. We started talking about that a little bit in the last episode. But it was not a success critically or commercially. So for a while, Paramount toyed with the idea of the next film being a prequel, casting younger actors to play versions of these characters when they were in the Academy. However, that did not go over very well with either the original cast or with fans in general. Or baby Chris Pine, who was like, no... I'm not old enough to do that yet. (laughs) I don't even know how old Chris Pine was. I mean, surely he was alive at this point, right? Surely. Surely. He's older than me. Yeah. 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 However, they really wanted a new film out in time for the 25th anniversary of Star Trek because, you know, Paramount. They're not oblivious to opportunities to make money. (laughs) I mean, they are, but only outside of the U.S. with streaming services. So they finally managed to tempt Nicholas Meyer to come back to make a film. And they basically said, hey, you have like a few months to write a script. Go ahead and work with Denny Martin Flynn and Leonard Nimoy and see what happens. And apparently the way the story goes is that Leonard Nimoy was like, what if we did a story in Star Trek where the wall came down? And that was the whole idea for this film. Basically, the idea was it's 1991, the wall had come down two years prior, I guess, at this point. And so it was something that was obviously on the minds of a lot of people, especially since, as we've talked about before, the Klingons have been used throughout the series as a stand-in for the Soviets. So it seemed very timely in order to make this particular Star Trek film. The only other thing I want to say before we get into it is that, because I know you care about these things... This film earned two Oscar nominations, one for Best Makeup and the other for Best Sound Effects. And it is the only Star Trek movie to win the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film. I know you care about the Oscars stuff. I just wanted to let you know this is a two-nominated film. As I was reminded during this Oscar season, there used to be two sound categories where there is now one. So it was actually a lot easier to get a technical award or a nomination for sound before, you know, they did less awards. And so that was even before they didn't show them on TV anymore. So this has been a real contraction of recognition. Okay. Here's what it was up against in makeup. It was up against two other films, Terminator two judgment day and hook. And Terminator 1, I'm sure. Terminator 2 did win that year. You are absolutely correct. And then the sound effects category, it was up against Terminator 2, which won again, and Backdraft, which is a film that I have never heard of. 
It's about fire. I mean, (laughs) anyway. So, quick summary. After a terrible energy accident threatens the environment of the Klingon homeworld, the Klingons enter talks with the Federation to secure a lasting alliance and to dissolve the demilitarized zone. Kirk and crew are charged with one final mission. They're like days away from retirement to escort the Klingon Chancellor and his party to Earth for the summit. When the Chancellor is assassinated en route, Kirk and McCoy are blamed and sentenced to spend the remainder of their lives in a Klingon prison. Kirk must find a way to escape, and Spock must find the assassin before they strike again. Isn't it neat that back in 1991, they thought people who, like, ruined the universe's shot at having, like, sustainable life due to an ecological, if you will, disaster. Isn't it neat that we would put them in, like, prison camps instead of rewarding them with, like, quarterly bonuses? I mean, I hate oil executives, but I can't send them to jail for what they've done. (laughs) What were your first reactions to this film? It was good. I liked it. Oh, you did? I wasn't sure while we were watching it. You were very, I don't know, you were just very calm throughout the whole thing. She said, because I am usually not calm at all. (laughs) I just couldn't tell if you liked it or not. So you did like it. What did you think about the whole Cold War ending of it all? The wall coming down. We've talked about this before in other episodes of Sam Watches Star Trek. When we've seen the Klingons in the original series episodes, they are clearly supposed to be a stand in for these types of wars, especially since the original series aired while Vietnam was going on. I think it's really sad because, of course, his name was associated almost more than anyone else's with the actual fall of the Berlin Wall, for example. But so I really, I think it's sad that they couldn't get Hasselhoff and some Klingon makeup and, you know, have him be part of it. Missed opportunity. I think it's a missed opportunity. Do you have any other thoughts about that particular storyline? You're nope, the only just, one who lived through it. I mean, I nope. was born right after. Well. Tell me about the Cold War. Tell me stories. <laughs> well, children, gather round and I will tell you a tale of communism and the little country that could, but shouldn't, multiple times in the 20th century. Germany. It started at one place and ended in another. I do actually... It, I think it's really interesting that the metaphor here is that the Klingon Empire has to participate in intergalactic, universal, whatever you want to call it, politics with the um, Federation because life is no longer sustainable on their own due to their own actions. That seems to be... And I don't really know, because I was, I was fairly young at the time, you know, me and Chris Pine were both fairly young at the time. I, I don't know if that was really the take that we had about the fall of the Soviet Union. I, I just don't know. Um, it doesn't seem like it was to me, but then again, I was much younger. It really feels like later you know, a few years later, maybe even into the the 2000s, where we really started to 
think about the Soviet Union as something that collapsed under its own weight. There were definitely stories coming out pretty quickly um, about how in East Berlin, for example, things were very not great prior to the fall of the wall. You find out uh, when the Soviet Union collapses that things were not great there either. You know, things seemed to get a little bit better initially once there was a better system of import and export. But, you know, I think the longer it goes on, the more of a interesting metaphor that this is. Although, as I said, maybe adults who knew a lot about this stuff, maybe they just did a really good job writing a script and paid attention for once. Or maybe they just got lucky. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Does it surprise you that this was Nimue's idea? Well, not especially. He seems like the smart one of the bunch. <laughs> so, why my reaction to this film watching it again was because you know I like the messy politics stuff. It's it's you you don't know this yet because you haven't seen any DS9, but it's why I chose the last episode that I did for Pod Wraiths, why I chose the Maquis part 1 and part 2 because it has a lot of these like messy politics in it. It's not cut and dried this film. We're supposed to feel sympathy, empathy for both sides of the conflict, and we're supposed to be critical of both sides of the conflict. How did you feel about that? Seeing characters that historically were very othered in the original series, very lots of markers of Orientalism, lots of like quote unquote savagery in these characters. How did you feel about them being? I don't want to use the word humanized because I think that they would object to that as being speciesist, but they they are given a lot more empathy. While on the flip side, we see a lot of racism from the, or speciesism from the crew of the Enterprise and some Federation members at the beginning of the film. Okay, so I don't have any issues, I think, from a, a topical perspective with the film. As you can see a few minutes ago when I wandered very casually through those ideas, I think they're interesting and I think they bear examination and they won't collapse under the weight of examination, which Star Trek metaphors often will actually do. (laughs) I do have a big problem with this movie and it is related to what you're saying. Okay. Tell me about that. So, all right, let's review Let's go all the way back to Star Trek, the motion picture. That should not exist. Right. You made that very clear. Right. So let's just accept that and move on. So in a world where the film reboot begins with the Wrath of Khan, that would be, that is the film, in fact, where it is introduced that Kirk has a child, correct? Yes. All right. So this was a mistake. Okay, that's that's a big mistake. He immediately is killed in the next movie, number three, correct? Yes, in The Search for Spock. That is when he dies off camera. And then it never comes up in number four. Well, it does in like an offhand comment, it but it's ne- not central. No, it's nothing. Same Z's with number five. This he has a child thing is shoehorned into number two, not mentioned. Between 
when he dies in three, which is very nothing. I mean, it's very anticlimactic in number three. It's almost like... Despite Shatner's acting. Right. It, it's almost like, oh, we don't really want this. Let's just undo it instead of ignoring it. They just killed the dude. And then they forgot it happened. And then it was convenient to bring up in number six. Now, I have a problem with that. So, here's the thing. Again, I stand by my thing that number five should be removed. And it could be done as like a Picard-like after thing. Right. It should have happened after this. Kirk. Right. So, basically what you're saying, or what I'm saying, is that Star Trek The Motion Picture is the Wrath of Khan. Star Trek 2 is a version of the search for Spock. Star Trek 3 is the whale one. And then, Which is still your favorite, I yes. believe. And then this would now be Star Trek 4. Okay. Okay, that's that's a good series right there from a stylistic perspective. So let's go back to the problem with Kirk Jr. Right. David. Okay, right. So there's three seasons of the original series, right? Right. And I don't like to casually throw the term Lothario around, but I think <laughs> if we could call anybody in pop culture a Lothario, it is... <laughs> Captain James Tiberius Kirk. <laughs> so, the original series has us believe one of two things. Kirk was a big believer in birth control. He always made sure that he was wrapped up tight and everything was fine. Except right. for once. And then, and then, and then, and then, in Star Trek 2, we find out, except for that one time, right? That is what we are told. That is the logic of this. Or there are thousands of Kirklings all over the universe, but he cares about this one, but only because he actually knows about it. And so what I'm saying here is the idea that Kirk has a child and cares about that child flies in the face of three seasons of television episodes, and therefore, being motivated in this movie by his son, which they tell us he is, is junk. That's bad. No, I don't buy that at all. Find another reason. There's 12. All you have to do is pick one. To be fair, this is from a weird Star Trek pedantic standpoint. Star Trek as a series does make it very clear that it's hard for humans to have offspring with most aliens. Like, it's not impossible. The odds are just very low. So. I'd like to think if anybody can defy those odds, if nothing else, by the sheer force of will and the number of times he tried, <laughs> it would be. It would be. James Tiberius Kirk. Okay. So you don't think that they sell his relationship with his son enough for this just virulent hatred of Klingons based on his son's death? Yes. If this were a sales pitch, like an actual sale, I want you to buy the idea. Here is the equivalent. Are you ready? This is the equivalent of an actual sales pitch. Huh? <laughs> huh? 
He has a kid. He has a kid. Yeah. People like kids. We get to see his picture. Especially when it's their own kid. Oh, look, he has a picture. To remind us that he existed. I mean, you know, never picked up the phone and called mom and had a conversation about, oh, I miss my son. Which, you know... Again, literally to be try fair, anything. The original beginning of this film was actually going to be all of them in retirement doing various things on Earth and they get like called back basically for this mission. And the original plan was to have Kirk be like on a ranch somewhere married to Carol. Well, I guess they should have done that then, shouldn't they have? Well, unfortunately, Paramount did not give them the budget to do that. So that was that was something that was cut. Well, that doesn't excuse bad writing. But Coming back to the the space racism thing, though. So even if we don't believe Kirk, you can be racist, and people are for a lot of different reasons. Well, and this I think we didn't see that. Have to be a rev- exactly. I think we see that in the other characters besides Kirk, because we have several comments from the Enterprise crew, including Chekhov and Scotty and McCoy, who express a lot of doubt about the Klingons' ability to be an equal partner in this treaty. But we also, at the very beginning, had this hit very hard by Admiral Cartwright, who is played by Brock Peters, who those of you who have watched DS9 will recognize as Commander Sisko's father. But in this, he's playing a very racist admiral in the the I, I just kept thinking at the beginning of this movie as like the war room from Dr. Strangelove, because that's what it was, right? It was like a whole conference table, and then you had the big screen that was kind of like the big board, and he was definitely the, you can't let a Russian in here, he'll see the big board type of person. Which which I just want to say, first of all, in the early 90s, the great time of subtle commentary on race that brought us the Ted Danson vehicle made in America... And, you know, later had him being told by Whoopi Goldberg of Star Trek fame that blackface would be a super fun idea. This is the time period that we're talking about here. Very, very subtle. So they made this character a black man who voiced... See, anybody can be racist. Yeah. That's that's where we were in the early 90s, first of all. It is weird... Because you have this intersection of paranoia, leftover paranoia from the Cold War, right? Like we're trying to tap into these like paranoia and insecurities about the Soviets. But then there's also a lot of like, let's talk about American racism. And those are two things that don't really go together. And this actually made Nichelle Nichols very uncomfortable. There is a line, a moment of dialogue where Chekhov says, guess who's coming to dinner? which is, of course, a reference to a very famous film about American racism. Originally, Uhura was supposed to say that line, and Nichelle Nichols refused. She also refused to say a line that was eventually cut, where basically her character had to say, yeah, but would you want your daughter marrying one? And she was so uncomfortable with that. She just absolutely refused to say anything that would tie this particular story thematically to race in that way. Right, and it's really funny... Not haha funny, but boy, you're bad at this funny. That they would try to conflate, you know, Cold War ideology with America's brand of racism. So that that just doesn't work unless you're going. I mean, so you know, Ibram 
Kendi talks about the intersection of that is Angela Davis. Yeah. Right? Somebody that they tried to destroy, and when they couldn't destroy her for being black, they destroyed her for being communist. You know, so you could have gone in that direction, and it might have actually worked. It wouldn't have, but it made far more sense. And and the only way this would have worked is if they had cast Sidney Poitier as a Klingon. Let's be very clear here. But, you know, like, that classic take on racism has zero things to do with the Cold War. Just nothing to do with it. Because it turns out, when it comes to being people that discriminate against other people... American history does tell us that that Americans can, in fact, walk and chew gum. They can hate multiple people at once for completely separate reasons. So this this doesn't work. It's clumsy. Still a good movie, but it's clumsy. What did you think about the dinner scene where you had the chancellor and all of the other Klingons on one side, the Federation people on the other? Kirk obviously doesn't want to be there, but he's trying to do his job. Spock is the only one who's being polite to anybody. Right. Well, here's the thing. The biggest mistake, I'm trying to tell you, the biggest mistake that this film makes is trying to make a complicated case for space racism. If you know anything about racism, it's not complicated. People are ignorant fools who make judgments about other people without any good reason. That is is what racism is. The history of racism is inventing complicated reasons to justify something that is at its base foolish. What this film could have done is shown us that a lot of people don't want to be friends with the Klingons because they look different. End of story. And they try to create some complicated justifications for that which would be very interesting when contrasted with why the crew of the Enterprise feel this way. Because they have actually, they've had to deal with Christopher Lloyd's, you know, like, boundless, (laughs) his character's boundless hatred in the face of good reason for humanity, almost killing Kirk, you know, all this stuff, right? Like, they have actual good reasons to be unsure about the Klingons. It would be an interesting contrast to see some, you know, this group of people who have actually been, well, I I mean, we tried this before and it it didn't work out, so we're not sure. And then to be won over. That would have been, and then have that contrasted with, with people like our Admiral, I, I think you said, who is just for no good reason that we know of against the Klingons. That would have been good. It would have been good to see people who had an actual reason to not like the Klingons be convinced that the majority of the Klingons really are not like that and would like to be this way. And you could contrast that with fools and idiots. That would have been nice. (laughs) This was interesting for me because I have the benefit of having seen a lot of different kinds of Trek And sometimes I forget that mainly due to budgetary reasons and because of just the culture of the 60s, that the main cast of the TOS Enterprise is mostly human. 
Right. The only one who's not human is Spock from the original group. Yep. And I was sort of reminded of this when the daughter of the Klingon chancellor who becomes chancellor after he's assassinated, I think her name is Atzibur. She says the Federation is speciesist. You know, you get along with all these species or whatever, but really it's the humans that are calling the shots and they're the ones who are are organizing everything. What did you think about that? I just, for a minute, want to talk about Darth Maul in Solo. Okay. Yeah. I'm Wasn't that very cool? curious. Wasn't yeah. that neat? Yeah. You shouldn't have to watch. I mean, this is this is a fair criticism of that movie. I shouldn't have had to have watched the entirety of the animated shows to get what was happening there. Because as you recall, you had not seen them at that point. Right. And and your sibling was like, well, I guess you should have watched these. You remember that? <laughs> My sibling, Jake, was like, well, I guess you should have watched yep. the animated series. Which, right. by the way, I was completely wrong. I should have watched them before that. You should that. have, but I would call party foul on... You know, you, you you can't expect that's not fair. So I take what you're saying about Star Trek, but you can't expect me to have watched all every, you know, the seasons of. Oh, of, no. no, no, I'm just that's saying not I, what I'm saying. No. I guess what I'm saying is, is that when I I sometimes forget that the main crew of TOS is all human because future Treks are going to do a lot better job of trying to have more dif- right. species. All represented. I'm saying is that it's interesting that you come at it from a different mindset. And and I just brought up Solo to say that that's kind of what I did when I saw that. But it would be a very fair criticism to go, "Mm -mm, no, you can't do that. I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but it's what it made me think of. Now, I do have this thought, okay? Now, I have seen uh, First Contact. Yes. Right? We watched that for a class together, I think. Yes. So I have a rough idea of how that story goes, right? Of course, I've forgotten more than I remember probably at this point. But I find it interesting. The Federation is based in San Francisco, which is actually really fun when you think about the fact that San Francisco is where number four happens. Like, I think that's funny. What's less funny is the fact that that the dum-dums who couldn't figure out space travel for themselves and had to have a little cheat to make it happen got to be the host site for the Federation. Yeah, I. Mm-hmm. they basically did set up the Federation around people who definitely failed upward. So <laughs> Humanity, failing you, upward. <laughs> <laughs> failing upward since the end of the Ice Age. All right. And of Kirk... Uh, of course. <laughs> and of course, Kirk learns nothing from this because oh, Kirk. at one point, Spock says, that's a weird way of describing this Klingon. And Kirk says, oh, we're all little human, Spock. And he says, I find that offensive. <laughs> hey, bro, you're 50% human. You need to get right with that. Right. But I understand being like, you can't just say everybody's a little human <laughs> when most of the galaxy is not, in fact, human. I think that might have been a metonymical reference to racism. Well, everybody's a little human. <laughs> Are you saying every human's a little racist? And then Kirk would have been like, yeah, I guess so. I guess that's right. I guess. Yeah. Ah, you're right to be offended. 
the other thing about this movie, the Cold War plot of it all, and I know that I have Bond on the brain because we did that series at the end of last year. For those of you listening to this who haven't heard our Bond series, we have like a really great, I think it ended up being five-part series on Bond. we should have called that series Bond on the Brain. Bond on the Brain. But this, of all the Star Trek movies we've watched, reminds me the most of Bond because of the Cold War themes, but also because of like some of the stuff that happens in like the prison but also the fact that they uncover that this plot, and it really shocks them at first, that this plot to assassinate the Klingon ambassador and then later the Federation chancellor or the Federation head president, I guess he's a president. They're very shocked to find out that it's both Klingons and Federation operatives. The call is coming from inside the house. There are parties on both sides who would rather work together to keep the conflict going than to solve their differences. And that reminded me a lot of Bond. Like the whole spy versus spy, Mm. but also that there are interested parties on both sides that basically are like, we are profiting off this war, so we'd rather work together so we can continue to fight. Well, I mean, that's not particularly hard to think about, considering the fact that people like Ian Fleming... And Roald Dahl, by the way, who was convinced that every uh, every idiot on this planet's an adult. I meant to say that backward, but it actually works. Um, <laughs> they were spies. They were active in the early days of the Cold War as uh, British agents in Washington, D.C., overall trying to do the right thing, but, you know, trying to keep America in line. Very paternal standpoint, although I'm not sure it's not earned. So it's really not, you know, and you think about what the kinds of things that they observed. It doesn't strike me as odd that Ian Fleming would come away with an attitude that, you know, both sides will work against their own self-interest when appropriate, just like Roald Dahl wouldn't learn from this experience that everyone is, in fact, a dumb dumb. (laughs) like i mean these are the lessons of the early cold war right so i mean if you're going to talk about the late cold war and how much they biffed that this is actually the correct lesson from the early cold war why do you hate each other because oh i thought it was ideology nope just because so obviously there's a lot of moving parts to this conspiracy but the two sort of representatives of both the klingon element and the federation element would you say a lot of shifting parts god like a lot of shape-shifting parts oh my god okay so the representative on the klingon side is general chang who's played by christopher Plummer, who was convinced by shatner to be in this movie because he and shatner had been in some plays and some other theater productions i guess together what did you think of christopher Plummer's shakespeare quoting general chang your shakespeare professor isn't around Nobody's impressed. (laughs) I mean, Nicholas Meyer, we've talked about how he tried to steer this franchise more into a literary realm than a philosophical one in Wrath of Khan. All I'm trying to say is, is if that guy died and you found out that it was because he quoted Shakespeare too much, I'd be like, no jury in the land would convict you. He had that coming. (laughs) I did like the Kirk. I really wish this guy would shut up. No, actually, it's not Kirk who says that. It's McCoy. 
I really wish this guy would shut up. Yeah. yeah when you said it, you heard it, yeah, right? I That's did. big McCoy energy. That was energy. McCoy energy. I heard it. I heard it. What did you think about the title also being from Shakespeare and Kirk's use of that to say the future is the undiscovered country? Yeah. That is, Neat. of course, from Hamlet. Yeah. Cool. Okay. He wanted to use that title for two, so he finally got to use it. See, I, I, yeah, no, I think it's the right title for the right movie. Again, it should be four, not six, but there you are. There you are. I really kind of wonder what Nicholas Meyer's series would have been like. Because, I mean, be, well, as because much think as I about, liked Leonard Nimoy's direction for four, it would be interesting right. to know what Nicholas Meyer's. Right. Like, think about what the title of number four is and then what the title of number six is. Wouldn't they work one right after the other? Oh, Wouldn't yeah, that be guess, neat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that see. would work. If only we didn't have to worry about Shatner. Everything would have been great. <laughs> and on the other side, we have Valeris, who is a Vulcan, newly graduated cadet. She was originally supposed to be Savic, that character, but Robin Curtis was long gone. And Kim Cattrall was like, I am not playing that character. I know you immediately started singing the mannequin theme song when she came on screen. Yeah. And I mean, they missed a real trick because, as you know, the the artists behind Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now is a little band that was once called Jefferson Airplane Starship. <laughs> the band is called Starship. You cast Grace Slick in this role or in any role, have them perform the title track for the movie. Synergy, people. Synergy and you ruined it. What's interesting about this is that Spock is clearly, he's clearly mentoring her to take his place. He even says that at the beginning of the movie. And he feels very betrayed at, by her by the end of the movie to the point where Kirk has to come find him in his quarters and be like, hey, buddy. Hurt feelings all around. It's interesting because we've been told throughout the entire series that Vulcans can't lie that they only rely on logic, that they are primarily peaceful and nonviolent to the point where most of them are vegetarians. This is all, of course, come from Spock, mostly. What did you think about the fact that one of the insurgents, one of the conspirators for this whole thing is a Vulcan? And she explains it quite logically to Kirk when asked. Well, Tessa, going back to something I said a while back, the work of racists is to make something that is baseless logical. So it's actually a really interesting twist to have, you know, a species that is formed around ideas of logic and nonviolence in the way that you describe, not do that. You know, it just proves that, that anybody can or any species, I guess, in this particular conception, can manage to do this. But as you said, she manages to make that very logical case, which again is what every powerful racist has tried to do. Some better than others, of course. And when I say better, I don't mean they made the case. Everybody fails at it eventually because it's wrong. But some people have actually tried to be more artful about it, and we can see that. Do you think that this underscores the lesson that Spock has sort of been learning throughout this whole series, this whole endeavor, that logic can, in fact, lead you to stray? He says, he says at one point in this movie, it's the beginning of wisdom, not the end. 
so the question here is, is what role does empathy play in wisdom? Right. Right. That's the difference between, or you could articulate that as the difference between knowledge and wisdom, is empathy. It, it doesn't matter if you know everything, but if you don't know what to do with it, you cannot be considered wise. So that would be a, I'd be okay with that as a way of thinking. Does that mean Vulcans don't have empathy? Is empathy an emotion? Do androids dream of electric sheep? <laughs> I mean, I think this is a really good question in terms of like, is empathy an emotion? I mean, they will say that logically, that, that peace and nonviolence is the logical conclusion, but obviously well, that's not true for all of them. Okay, but if you think, I don't know, I, I mean, do, you, do, we, do we think that Philip K. Dick came down on the side of the fact that androids can actually have empathy and that's a, a real thing? No, but he thought that humans should have empathy for androids. Mm, I see. But androids in a, the cold, dark-haired girl, she can't have empathy. Oh, okay. Well. It, it would have ruined his sexual fantasy. That's fair. Anyone who's screaming at me right now, I'm right and you know it. Yeah. Well, okay, let's forget him. Who cares about him? Do we read that film or the book and come out of it with the judgment that hmm, maybe they do? Well, no. The film thinks that right. androids well, can the have. The film it. thinks Deckard is a right. The film is an android. The film not thinks Harrison Ford. Blade Runner, but the film does. By Ridley Scott believes that an- some androids can have empathy if they are allowed to. Okay. The book does not. Okay. Okay. Thank you for refreshing my memory, person who has to deal with this every day. <laughs> um, and by that I mean having to refresh my memory. And do androids dream of electric sheep? If you believe that androids, right? If you believe that they can have empathy, I think you have to believe that any organic species could. It it would be a real leap to say that artificially man-made people (laughs) can have (laughs) empathy, but these pointy-haired little people over here can't. That actually sounded more like I said elves don't have empathy. <laughs> They're not little. I don't know. Well, according to Terry Pratchett, they don't. But Well, there you are. Anyway, that's this like is a what, whole other thing. Well, but the point is, that's what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about the fact that can a species that relies on logic, can they have empathy? Again, are, I think that would require, is empathy an emotion or is it something you can come to through pure reason? Well, I don't think you can well, that's the question. Well, I don't. Well, then no. Well, maybe that's what Spock had to learn. Is empathy a learned behavior? That is also a good question. Or is it innate? Can you learn to dream of electric sheep, Tessa? <laughs> there is, however, that's the. You are right that this film has some clumsy stuff with race, but it also has a very uncomfortable scene in which they are extracting information from Valeris, and Spock mind melds with her against her will to get this information. This is a pretty controversial scene, and it's something that actually came up in my episode with Pod Wraiths. Okay. The second episode. I, I that knew we this did. was coming. We talked about this when we talked about Requiem for Methuselah, where we discussed how at the end of that episode, Kirk says, I want to forget, and then immediately falls asleep because I guess he was tired. And Spock takes that as him asking Spock to mind meld to help him forget. And so he does so. And my point was, is that I thought the consent was dubious. You thought that maybe there had been like some other conversation about it. 
Compare that to what happens in this scene, which is clearly not consensual and is clearly painful for her. While he's extracting this information about where the peace summit is and where who's involved in the in this coup. I would grant you that you could see what happened in the original series as dubious consent. I, I understand that. What happens in this movie anticipates what's going to happen more than a decade later with Guantanamo. That's what this is, because that is the whole legal argument that was used in the U.S. was, if I know that this is going to happen, like, if I have intelligence that this will happen, does that excuse quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques, otherwise known as violations of the Geneva Convention, otherwise known as torture, to get that out. It's a utilitarian, well, it's supposed to be a utilitarian argument that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of this person not to have Which Spock be literally said in the second well, film. Well, and, and, you know, but that's the question, right? And you'll just have to take me out at my word on this because none of you knew me. I was very loud about the fact that none of this was right. So I'm going to I'm going to have I'm going to I'm going to take the Obi-Wan position on this uh of the high ground of saying they thought this was an argument. I did not vote for these people. I did not agree with these people and I have said both of them very loudly. So I am going to take the high ground on that. This was the conversation that they were having. They said that this was okay. And they're going to have to live with that. And and that's the thing about this is that Spock doesn't I don't anticipate Spock having a problem with living with this which I think is interesting. Unfortunately, it will never be explored. I'm curious why because this comes up a few times in the series as we were talking about in our DS9 episode on Podwraiths. How is this not against whatever updated form of the Geneva Convention that there is, the forcible mind meld? I mean, you shouldn't you should need consent before melding your mind with someone else's. I feel like that's not a controversial thing to say. Well, okay. So what I imagine the Vulcans would say is, if you had evolved to where we have in our use of logic, you wouldn't see it that way. You're just being hysterical. I mean, I hate that as an explanation. But I'm not wrong. I mean, fair. So you also found that upsetting. Well, yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. But that, that is but yeah. that is the entire ethical quandary of you know, US law with an enemy quote unquote enemy combatant in the early twenty first century. It is it is that argument exactly. What did you think about the McCoy and Kirk trial and prison storyline mm-hmm. featuring <laughs> Michael Dorn playing I know you don't really know who Worf is, but he's playing an ancestor of Lieutenant Worf from The Next Generation, which was already in its third season by the time that this movie came out. So it seems like a really fun, like, hey, like, look at this, like, person. He's in the other show. And Iman, who we all know, plays a very hot shapeshifter in what I would also say is the other thing that reminded me of Bond. She seemed like the evil Bond villain girl well, I like how she <laughs> she tells kirk like you're an idiot and you fall for attractive women i made myself look like an attractive woman come on dude come on i like 
that she tells Kirk that it must have been his life goal to make out with himself. <laughs> Classic. While I can name none off the top of my head, this is full of this is full the, the, like how many times have we seen the the trial on unjustly sent to prison narrative? How many times have we seen the prison breakout narrative? How many times have we seen no, I'm not the real person. This is the real person narrative. How many times have we seen the curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal? We've seen on an episode of Star Trek the original series the freezing to death narrative. I was going to say all of our yesterdays. It's almost exactly the same scene, except for yeah. it's Kirk instead of Spock because McCoy collapses right. and is like, leave me, which happens in that episode. Yeah. I mean, so like it's a greatest hits. Okay. But it's fine. It also reminded me not to go back to the bond thing, but die another day. The whole like, oh, well, it you did something bad. So I guess we're just going to leave you in prison. I mean, this was this was one. I need that guy's arm away from being the Guardians of the Galaxy jailbreak. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, this whole subplot relies on things that we see over and over and over again. And they do it fine. No notes. I'm fine. It's oh, I was okay. supposed to say, did you enjoy it? Even yeah. Though it was like, well, I mean. Overall, once again, I like this movie. This was fine. As opposed to, we just spent half an hour talking about all the philosophically troubling <laughs> things about this movie. This is fine. So, Mary Jo Slater cast this movie, which you noticed in the opening credits. You knew who she was. And I didn't tell you that she had Christian Slater, her son, appear yeah. in a cameo. He's the guy who wakes up Sulu, who is has his own ship now. He's Captain Sulu. She specifically wanted to load this movie down with younger or bigger named actors. Yeah. So she was good with Christopher Plummer being in it. She wanted Kim Cattrall. She wanted Rosanna DeSoto. She wanted Kurtwood Smith, who plays the the, <laughs> the Federation president. Dumbass. She she wanted her son. I asked you if Foreman was going to show up. I did. You, you remember did. that? You did. She wanted him on. She wanted people th- that younger audiences would recognize and it worked there were a lot of people who said that even though christian slater was only in that one scene that well if he likes star trek which he did he's a huge fan of star trek if he likes star trek then it must be cool because it's christian slater right little jack nicholson <laughs> what did you think well, of, i stand by that what he did is. you think about the casting yeah, once choices you, once you think about him as little jack nicholson it's there forever you're welcome I are mean, you surprised to see him it was neat. I enjoyed that. I thought Kurtwood Smith was a good choice. Uh, you know, the problem with Kurtwood Smith is any role he took after that '70s show, or any role that you see him in retroactively after you've seen the seven that '70s show, he's red. <laughs> it's just the oh, okay, the guy in charge of the Federation is red. Got it. So before we wrap up, I just want to hit on kind of the crew and where they are at the end of this so as i mentioned sulu has his own ship what did you think of captain sulu well i mean good for him right first of all like good for him genuinely that's really all i have to say about that but you know the thing that i found curious was you know this film ends on like a class photo Right. And because he's the captain of his own ship now, he's not in the class. He's like the kid who graduated early and went to college and isn't in any of the pictures at the end of the day. Does it matter? No. 
But it's still sad when you look at the yearbook. But he's the only one who gets to say goodbye to Kirk because everyone else is still with him at the end of the movie. <laughs> he's the only one. Everybody else is still stuck with him. I, I like that. So I couldn't find anything about this really why they had it this way. I mean, it makes for a cool battle to have the two Federation ships going up against the new Bird of Prey. But I do know that Decay and Shatner did not get along even at the best of times, even though they would put it kind of behind them to make these films. I kind of do wonder if that's why Takei is the one at the head of the. Well, isn't he the logical choice though? I mean, he is the logical choice, but why not Chekhov or, you know, like one of those other characters. It's just, I wonder if it's because Takei and Chatter didn't want to be in a room together. It's just a I thought. Mean, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to make casting choices and plot choices based on people who don't want to be in the same room with Shatner, I gotta tell you, man, that's a that's a whole that's a different. Lot of, that's yeah, a lot. that's a lot. We you get, can't tell me Candace Bergen didn't want to throw him out the window every day <laughs> on the set of Boston Legal. I mean, she might have, for all we know. Anyway, Chekhov. We do get some humorous interludes with Chekhov. Not really a lot of plot development on him, just the funny stuff. Which I mean, to be fair, he's good at. He's good at this. Thoughts on him or on Uhura, who is still wearing a black skirt and has to improvise a scene in Klingon. I mean, I think you just said it all right there. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I did very much enjoy that scene where she had to to speak Klingon, and which is another pop culture trope, right? The subtitles where you say, you know, you see that they're absolutely butchering it. I, whoever decided that she was, that her doing that had the most comedic potential was right. Good for them. That's That's what I have. Your favorite character, Scotty. Yep. He has a real moment at the end of this where he kicks down the door and <laughs> vaporizes the would-be assassin at the end of the movie. The real hero. <laughs> and finally, the trio, McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. So McCoy and Kirk obviously get a lot of screen time together in their like whole prison break. Yeah. Kirk learns to not be so much of a space racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Spock I, I, has a disappointment, but ultimately, I think. I really do think that the the bickering old married thruple has has really made some progress there. Coming around on the thruple. No, stop trying to make thruples happen. You're Tessa. the one who brought it up. I, I called no, them a trio. No, I said couple. I don't. I don't know. I don't you know. You said what thruple I, for no, sure. I didn't. I'll play back the tape later. Eh, well, I won't be around. <laughs> What did you think about the ending where they're like, the Enterprise needs to be decommissioned and Spock's like, I think the human phrases go to hell and they go on their last, They, I mean, they say it's their last one, their last cruise on the Enterprise that it's time to hand it over to another crew. And we all know that that is, of course, Picard and friends. What did you think about where everybody was at the end of this and the way that the film ends with the cast signing their names? I mean, I, I think, I'm glad they put a punctuation mark at the end of this. I I think that, well, I mean, tell me that these people did not have a better send-off on their franchise than Hamill, Ford, and Fisher did. Oh, yeah. Right? Their legacies were, I, I would say trashed, but that's too gentle of a term. These guys went out on their own terms, and that's good. The only other thing I'll say about that is the idea that they're going to take the Enterprise for a joyride before they hand it over to Picard is is like, 
You remember the scene in Ferris Bueller where they where Cameron leaves the car with the attendants? Yeah. Dread? That's what I thought <laughs> Playing of. Playing the Star Wars theme, actually. <laughs> yep. That's what I imagine. They're, they're, they're like, joyride! Scotty's <laughs> like, I always wanted to see if we could try this. Kirk's like, go ahead! <laughs> Did you feel at all emotional to know this was the last time you were going to see some of these characters? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit? A little bit. So... We also get the sign-off with Kirk saying the entire monologue from the beginning of the original series, but he changes it. He says, no man, no one has gone before, which is, of course, the change that gets made between TOS and the next generation to be more inclusive. Cool. But that is supposed to be like, like you said, I like that. It's a punctuation mark on this particular era of Trek. Any final thoughts on these six movies? Should have been four with a Picard-like season afterward. (laughs) Speaking of what we're doing next, we are going to continue with Sam Watches Star Trek for three more episodes because we're going to do the Kelvinverse trilogy next. Chris Pine. Woo! That's the first time anybody's ever said that, by the way. (laughs) Because it features new versions of these characters and thematically... And some old ones. And some old ones. Thematically, I think it makes sense to watch these after these films because in a lot of ways, they exist in conversation with these films. We're going to see a lot of like set pieces and things that were in these films show up in the, the trilogy of Kelvinverse. So I'm excited to watch those. So next week, stay tuned for 2009's Star Trek. We are going to attempt to find some way to orally represent Lens flares. See if we manage to do that or not. Podcasting is a visual medium. I will just like have a mirror and shine light in your <laughs> Blind eyes. Me. Yeah, yeah, while you're talking. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. You can find Monkey Off My Backlog at Monkey Backlog. If you are interested in hearing me speak about the Deep Space Nine episode, The Maquis, Parts 1 and 2. You can look up the Star Trek podcast, Podwraiths. They are on Twitter at Podwraiths and wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>